came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. So today with us, we've got Aparna Tandon, who's a really, really good friend and just a fantastic human being. So Aparna is coming um, from the conservation background. Her background is in conservation of collections held in museums, archives and libraries. Aparna worked with archaeological objects and then later she specialized in paper conservation. She's originally from Jammu and Kashmir, where she worked also um, in the museum from 1998 to 2004, um, which, as many of you know, is a conflict-affected um, uh, area. Aparna worked in all types of heritage, tangible and intangible, especially um, as seen as exper- and experienced by ethnic minorities in Jammu and Kashmir. And so she had to deal with a lot of salvage after fires in heritage buildings. And then now Aparna is based in Icomos uh, in Rome as the project manager. And I've uh, been lucky enough to work with Aparna quite a lot on different projects around the world. Welcome, Aparna. Hello, Kirsenia. Thank you for having me today. Thanks for being with us, Aparna. We're so excited to talk to you. So as we were just hearing there, your background is um, in conservation of collections, but most of your work that you're known for is on first aid to cultural heritage. So we wanted to start off just by asking you to give us a bit more detail about um, your background and how you ended up working on the cross-section of cultural objects, disasters, and conflict. Uh, Thank you. Um, Well, cut the long story short. As uh, Kasanya has introduced, I am from Jammu and Kashmir, uh, which is an area affected by low intensity ethno-religious conflict from uh, now 25 years old, and it has also been affected by militancy. And plenty of uh, heritage has been destroyed there, abused there, and has been used to feed into conflict ideologies. Mm. So being a heritage professional, I won't say conservation professional because very early on I realized that heritage is an experience and if you have to sustain it and transmit it, then there have to be uh, not like, um, you can't strictly say, adhere to, you know, the conservation standards set up by uh, Western uh, uh, methods. Mm. And uh, so... Definitely, there is room for heritage transformation also, and uh, I guess growing up in Jammu and Kashmir and then later on working there as a professional, I acutely felt the differences and how heritage is a weapon to uh, intensify conflict there, and then in turn, that makes it vulnerable to natural hazard events and deliberate neglect. So that got me started into studying uh, how we can rescue heritage post-disasters and then how can we prevent heritage from being destroyed in conflict 
and in disasters. So what can we do to reduce the risk and what can we do to respond and recover? So I do not want to place myself in, in one phase or the other. I think it has to be all seen in a continuum. Hmm. So in practice, what does this look like and what kind of work are you doing with ACOMOS? Well, so in practice, this looks like that uh, I uh, work with a lot of stakeholders, different types of stakeholders, both uh, communities that are at the forefront uh, living in uh, vulnerable zones, uh, institutions, heritage institutions, and sometimes also policymakers, although not so much directly, and working with them to see how we can prepare people mm. to respond in especially in conflict situations when you have these long drawn out conflicts and uh, there is possibility of uh, an incident you know a hazard even occurring and so how, what can communities do because they are the first ones to respond local people are the first ones to respond and how does that sit with humanitarian aid and how does that fit into existing systems for response mm. and uh, emergency management and risk reduction is that is what my work is all about. So I work a lot with the humanitarian, civil defense personnel, um, Red Cross, uh, all the other humanitarian aid agencies as well as communities and institutions that are in these high risk areas. So I do a lot of training and uh, sometimes in crisis training and uh, sometimes before, like for preparedness and prevention. And then also, uh, I multi-actor trainings as well as uh, field projects and uh, also going crisis situations to work with people. Um, so one of the things that you've just alluded is those existing structures and existing communities. And we've had quite a lot of conversations about the values that pre-exist in these structures. But of course, it's very difficult to define values, right? And very difficult to establish values, particularly when these values are not tangible. And I always like this example, you know, that you very often give in the training courses about um, temples. And when sometimes outsiders uh, go into the temples, say, after an earthquake, right, trying to rescue um, a particular maybe fresco or a statue. And actually, they destroy the value of the temple, but just being in there because, you know, they, they are not supposed to be in there, but they didn't know about it. So how do you deal with this lack of understanding of values? What, what should we know and how should we um, take this into account? So I, I think uh, you raise a very valid point, Jenya, uh, that Part of the, what relies at the heart of our work is to understand because heritage is not just the physical manifestation. It is heritage because it's a construct and it, it is because people, it is valued because people associate uh, different um, uh, elements or aspects with it of uh, either uh, it, it's a reminder of the past or it uh, stands for a spiritual it's manifestation of their religious, uh, you know, physical manifestation of their religious sentiments. So those have to be respected in any crisis situation because the population is already affected. And uh, that's why it is very important to work with community insiders 
justice networks and uh, showing sensitivity, which I think has uh, slowly percolated into the humanitarian practice, but still we hear of incidents where cultural sensitivities are not shown or exhibited enough, and relief uh, is designed around uh, convenience rather than uh, convenience of the donors rather than that of the recipients. Uh, that's often the criticism, but the point is to really, really, when you're working with culture and cultural heritage, is to rely on uh, uh, your own sources, and they they have to be all. They also have to enjoy the trust of the community. And when I say community, I know communities are not one, uh, you know, uh, homogenous entities, and that there are there is power play in between, and there are multiple voices within one community. But the idea is to really, as quickly as possible, uh, set up a consultation process along with trying to save as many remnants as possible so that you are impartial, if not fully neutral. I think um, you talk talking there about the fact that we have um, different values that are present within the community is so um, important, and the fact that not everybody has the same amount of power or the same um, access and influence. So, um, how does this kind of um, difference in values and difference in power pr- um, kind of transfer over to the objects that we're? deciding to rescue and why we're rescuing them. So how do you how do you decide to do this and balance these power dimensions? Yeah, that's a very good question and a tough one because there's never a right or a wrong answer. But again, if you are keyed into the context very well, if you understand the wider social, political, cultural context of in which the emergency has occurred, and especially the conflict context and what are the nuances and interrelations between uh, different communities, uh, then you can really uh, understand how or which type of heritage to prioritize. Because as you rightly point out, that heritage by its very nature is, uh, you know, identified to somebody's identity. And uh, in that sense, we have to be guided by certain core principles that are not so different from the humanitarian principles, like inclusive uh, attitude, respect for diversity, being impartial, neutrality. I won't talk about that because that's highly contentious, but at least trying to be impartial and then being very context specific. So that means having people who are from the you know, um, local uh, who are embedded in their local context, be the people who front end the action. So it's very important that you work with those people who have been affected. I would like to give here an example because without examples, this uh, just seems like um, very abstract. Mm. For example, uh, in Haiti, when after the earthquake, uh, we were told by every third Haitian that we met uh, that everybody here, that 
ഹിസ്റ്റോറിയും and uh, wider consultation rather than just speaking with one person and understanding the power dynamics within that society um this has happened to me in nepal also where i and my colleague we believed a young man um who was at a temple site and took his word for saving a tantric mural without putting in our own intelligence of uh, or even using my own uh, you know inherent knowledge as a hindu that tantric uh, paintings are never uh, put together for active worship so in the end uh, we just spoke to the young man who was the son of the priest not the priest himself and later on after a huge uh, and intensive restoration process the painting was not put back into the temple mm. and that was a lesson learned that we wasted a lot of resources the power aspect is interesting because in uh, in some ways there may be opportunities to show that you value the experiences and knowledge of some of the people in a community that are otherwise oppressed right um so i'm just thinking do you see do you see it as a way towards empowerment and to um representing the needs of some of those who are not usually represented definitely it is also an, uh, a tool for heritage institutions to you know somehow reduce the boundaries because much of the heritage today is institutionalized yeah and uh, people are not, do not have a say in uh, how it is managed and how it is accessed mm. so one of the examples i would like to give here is that of myanmar there post earthquake uh, many of the, the, the site of ergan in 2016 was heavily affected more than 400 temples were affected were damaged because of past interventions and uh, many of the residents local residents and people who had shops in the site at the site shopkeepers travel uh, tour tour agent uh, tour guides sorry uh, they all came together to help with the salvage of these temples and uh, from we were asked by the local government and the unesco office there to direct the work of the local volunteers because uh, some of it was uh, going on haphazardly and uh, some of it was in a hurry so they were uh, mixing older fragments of the building temples with the the rubble that had to be uh, discarded and moved away from the site and they were also throwing it randomly in the fields around which would have rendered the fields to be infertile for the next crop season so um our job was to work with them and and understand uh, uh, what skills they have and enhance them and at the same time direct them because the scale of the operation was large for in the start the salvage and the emergency stabilization structures 
And uh, what I learned is from this interaction was that uh, people were very keen. Uh, they did not like that they had been removed from the site uh, in an earlier development of the site. And they were asked to move to a new Bagan area. So their deep connection with the site was broken. They had come mm. to perform, uh, you know, karma. Like uh, this is like, um, for them it is like a, some kind of a reward if they, they have come to perform that uh, in order to, to, to do the salvage. This was considered a very high duty like for them, like a spiritual action by cleaning their temples and offering prayers and making them uh, functional again was very important to the local people. And uh, they, in fact, uh, ha- this was for them an opportunity because when we showed them the forms, the assessment forms uh, used by the Department of Archaeology for doing damage assessment, they, for the first time, understood why government was taking such a long time Mm. in uh, cleaning the debris and uh, for them it was also for the first time they were holding a government document in their hand because this if we must not forget was a, was a community and a society which has had just come out of you know like uh, military rule years of military rule and is still in a partial state of democracy mm. So to be able to share in a government-led project was, uh, first of all, uh, many people expressed satisfaction over that. And then the other uh, wish that they expressed was that they should be part of any DRM plan, any disaster risk management plan that is conceived for the site, because they felt that as people who use the site daily, either as farmers or uh, you know, um, as shopkeepers or as, as um, you know, visitors to the site or as, uh, you know, devotees, they they could uh, help uh, the Department of Archaeology in identifying uh, slow progressive risks and maintaining the site. Mm. And also in the time to, uh, you know, to use the knowledge of this the last earthquake and 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 uh, use their pagoda days. Like every pagoda in that site has a festival, and so they they propose that those days when the community comes together to celebrate pagoda festivals could be used to sensitize and increase awareness for disaster risk management in general and in particular for the site. So I I seriously think that it's an opportunity for the government, for the heritage institutions to empower the communities who are otherwise not consulted when we uh, set up these big sites or make turn them into world heritage sites and, uh, you know, develop them from the point of view of attracting tourism, forgetting what the locals actually want or what's the link of the locals with the site. And, you know, I think you've alluded to this already. Very often when we 
talk about heritage in post-disaster context, we kind of focus on losses, right? And we very often talk about vulnerability. So very often the assessments that go in post-disaster context are focusing on vulnerability. But we, of course, know that heritage provides strength and very often gives people hope. Um, and, you know, we've seen it, right, when we did, say, field work in Georgia and these stories come um, come out all the time. So can you tell us a little bit more about heritage and hope, you know, heritage as capacities? Well, I, uh, again, I will go back to Haiti. I think that was my wake-up call uh, because I, I have seen this in Kashmir. I have seen people going with bare hands and trying to recover you know, from the ashes of a burnt building, books or anything that remains from the site, anything tangible because people value what is part of their life, you know, as a collective life. And it's not necessarily only uh, religious sites. Uh, I have seen people recovering uh, manuscripts, books or, you know, going to collective social spaces like we have seen in Nepal. In Haiti, I saw uh, a woman, she had, uh, I met up with a woman who had come to our uh, training. She had lost uh, many of her family members and she brought us a voodoo flag. It was covered with dust. I could still see it, the powdered, uh, you know, dust. And uh, she said it was torn. And uh, she said that uh, I have brought this voodoo flag because I think if we can save this. I will be, reach, uh, you know, regenerating hope for my clan and hope for my country. And this means everything to me because everything else that I knew or was familiar with lies in shambles. Mm. So, um, and we have seen these kind of stories also in Italy where people tried to rescue a Madonna statue. So, Without romanticizing or anything, I, I would like to say that definitely uh, it gives people hope as well as it helps to overcome tra- trauma. For example, I met a couple, uh, they're psychologists and, uh, in Japan, and they have been working for tsunami uh, with communities affected uh, uh, there. And uh, what they have said is uh, something so insightful. Um, it was seen that many of the older people who were moved away from the affected areas in the region, uh, in the tsunami affected region, they started uh, feeling um, lonely two years after, not not immediately. Like they, they started feeling depressed and then started dying after they were moved into these transit, uh, you know, uh, into these temporary shelters and many of them had guilt, huge amount of guilt mm-hmm. of the survivor's guilt uh, and each one had a story to tell uh, like a woman who had lost her entire uh, her, her, her school uh, uh, and the children who were uh, the students who were in the school and the teachers and she had remained uh, alive and uh, she had that guilt and another person. So there's there's stories of these people who were then engaged in recovering archives and other personal history documents from the wreckage, and that made them feel 
cope and overcome some of the depression mm. so obviously we need more clinical studies we need more on the ground evidence and we need to actually tell these stories because for now it remains anecdotal because this field is a very unfortunately and this covid 19 crisis is also telling us there's been this huge rhetoric uh, in the field that we have been investing a lot in the science and we have not been investing enough in uh, uh you know uh, prevention and i say that learning from how culture permeates every part of uh, your life learning from this experience i believe that we need to invest both in prevention preparedness coping capacities in considering the kind of uncertain world we are living in we cannot let go of one or the other we need to have multi hazard strategies but we also need to stop differentiating between phases and uh, we need to make an effort in really democratizing this field and making sure that people who are most vulnerable who are going to suffer the most here i am also talking about the cultural barriers because right now if you have been following news in india in other places if these people like artists um daily work majors who are craft people they are suffering the most because they do not have deep enough pockets mm. and deep enough security you know uh, and robust security systems around them that can support them to absorb this shock or even go without working in this extended period mm. uh, with lockdowns at this curfew so i think this is what i want to say uh, that one of the key ways to reduce vulnerability will be looking into culture in cultural heritage and investing in it as a tool for development and empowerment not forgetting that cultural heritage can be misused to politicize mm-hmm. to divide as it is deeply linked with identity and i would say imbalances in the power whether these are political power the world order because much of the problem in the areas that i have been working in in the middle east or in uh, asia has emerged from uh let's say colonial legacy mm. so some of this culture and history are like intertwined and it's about you know not documenting the past and not telling the stories from the point of view of the let's say the subaltern view of history from the point of view of people who are marginalized so there are gaps in our stories for cultural heritage so let's not forget that also because part of the problem is that Yeah, I think it's such an important message, right? That uh, heritage is also political, just like any disaster and any crisis, all of this political. And I just want to um 
pick up your brain a little bit more on this idea of romanticizing, right? And very often we see heritage being romanticized, particularly after a disaster. So what are the dangers of this romanticizing narrative for you? Well, romanticizing also comes from uh, not understanding the heritage in its you know, entirety or not understanding what's the story completely. And the dangers are that uh, then you really get, you play into the power dynamic. So you romanticize because uh, somebody has the power to do so and uh, build a narrative around it. So we have to be very, very cautious, uh, conscious of that. And this could be also media. A direct example of this could be, this is uh, the the famous story of um, the heritage sites in Syria, where um, some of the heritage, like where the entire villages, historic settlements were destroyed, and then uh, the world community was prioritizing certain world heritage sites over heritage of humanity in the sense uh, that their people were directly affected and their land was taken away from there. They could not go back to their countries. They were in between. We are still having that issue. So this is very contentious and showing opinion either way. People were, uh, you you know, uh, can be dangerous and people can be uh, termed as, uh, you know, partial or um, politically motivated. So in in such a situation, uh, there was a tendency to, uh, you know, romanticize ruins over. So again, it was like uh, looking at one particular worldview. So that is the danger. It's, it's fascinating. Thanks so much for joining us and thank you for everything that you're working on. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Katanya, Jason and me, Aparna Tandon on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast.